Morning, how are we doing this morning? I'm, I'm, I'm up here standing looking out on you for the first time from this stage. If you weren't here last week, we had a guest speaker, and if you're new to Genesis, this is just our second week in this space, and so I'm noticing a few things. One is the stage is much smaller, so I've got to be way more careful, but it's not as high, so if I do fall, I'm not going to break as many things. Um, but the other thing I, I, I'm noticing, I can see you, which for me is good. For you means I see when you fall asleep, and I will call you out. Like, really? Yeah, never know. <laughs> never know. Anyway, uh, it's good to see you. What a great day for our church. Okay? So if this is your first Sunday for us, yeah, that's right. That's right. Come on. Uh, if this is your first Sunday with us or you're new to Genesis, we've been meeting in a public space for 17 years, uh, but we are moving. The Lord has been so good to us. He's given us so much favor. We're moving towards uh, having our own permanent space, and we are doing our groundbreaking today. And so right after church, uh, we're going to head over to the property and celebrate that, and it's a great day. It's a great day. So make sure you do that with us. Uh, if if uh, you were part of Genesis, don't miss this. And if you're, if you're just kind of uh, checking us out, um, come join us anyway. We'll have cupcakes at the very least for you and your kids, all right? Uh, so come hang out with us. It's a, it's a great day. So let's just give thanks for that. Uh, give thanks to, that, that this day has come, all right? Uh, and then for real, uh, you'll hear more about this, but it's not going to be long until you'll see that property start changing. Um, and so what an exciting time. Uh, so um, I, I went through some recent health issues. Very specifically, I found out that I had AFib. And, and for those of you who don't know what that means, it means my heart was out of rhythm. It just wasn't beating at a, a normal rhythm. And I had to go through this crazy procedure where they put me asleep and shocked me back into rhythm. It actually woke me up. I felt the jolt and was like, whoa, and then went right back to sleep. Uh, didn't hurt, but it, it, it was kind of bizarre, you know. And now I, I've got a little more rhythm. But my, my son, who plays the drums for us, you know, uh, said this to my wife. He, he, he told her, he said, is anybody really surprised that dad's heart was out of rhythm? Have you ever heard him try to clap in church? Hey, I try. I try, okay? But if you're like him and the whole reason you go to church is because you want to hear good music with a good beat, uh, maybe my clapping will push you away. I don't know, you know, I, I, I try, you know, I, like some of y'all just, you know, like we, like we do white worship really well. You know, and, and so, you know, a few of you joining in and getting me on rhythm, and I, I try to listen to his drum beat and the bass and our other drummers and all that kind of stuff, but it, it, it you know, there are so many reasons, that, that's a big joke to get to this, there are so many reasons people are drawn to or leave church. I was, I was hanging out with a friend of mine recently, a guy who's in ministry, who loves Jesus, who's spent his whole life in churches, and we were talking about one of his sons who, uh, early, mid-twenties, has decided no, no specific reason. He just stopped going to church. He's not engaged in worship. He's not engaged in church. He grew up with a really strong faith, and right now, it's just not part of his life. And I, I, I grieved with him over that, as I have a lot of people in my life who had kids who grew up in church. I did youth ministry for 20 years, and one of the hardest things for me is to watch the fact that a lot of the kids that were in my youth ministry are no longer walking with Jesus, and they've kind of pushed away from this idea of church. Uh, and they fit with what statistics tell us are 40 million Americans who in the last about 30 years, people who once went to church, about 40 million Americans over the last 30 years have 
de-churched, disconnected from church, stopped going, stopped hanging out. Now, there, that, that sounds like really bad news, and it is. There are some really positive reasons for this. Um, and it, one of the things that is going on is that um, what used to be called cultural Christianity. A lot of people went to church, not because they believed, but because church was a place for social connections and for being accepted in a community, and that's kind of waning, and so you don't have to be in a church to be connected in most any culture unless you're in a really small town in the South anymore. Uh, but along with that is a lot of young people who are walking away from the faith, and a lot of other people are just saying, listen, the idea of church, I'm, I'm bugging out. I'm kind of, it's, it's not for me anymore. And, and, and Part of the reason, so about, about one out of four people who have de-churched have de-churched because something has happened at the church or in the, in the context of their religious life that has deeply wounded them, hurt them. They've been, they've been sexually abused. They've been harmed by a pastor who, who, who was, you know, uh, you know, a charlatan. They, they, they've been hurt by a pastor who, who um, was unethical, dishonest. Um, there's just a lot of that stuff. Or, or they've been close to people who, who had certain issues and struggles who the church really mistreated. That does leave three-quarters of the people who stopped coming just because of really convenience and rhythm of life and that kind of stuff. And COVID multiplied that. And the statistics tell us that the majority of those people, if they got an invite, would come back. And so here we are in this series, and here's, here's kind of priming the pump for what we're talking about today. A lot of people, the reason they've disconnected is because of the way the church has treated people in the culture. And they've just been like, if, if that's what Christianity is about, I'm not so sure. I'm not sure religion's a great thing. There's been a shift in the way our culture sees religion as a whole from a, a, a positive thing in the lives of people to really, for a lot of people, they see religion as a really negative thing. Um, but in the midst of this, as we listen to these sermons and inter- interact with this book, and if you haven't bought the book, you haven't listened to the podcast, you haven't been engaging this, I just want to double down and say, do it. Read the book. We are not preaching the book. We are interacting with the questions from this, I think, fantastic book that is taking questions from these people. These people are like, I'm out. I don't, I, I don't really think I'm going to be part of religion anymore. I don't think I'm going to be part of church. And let me tell you why. She is a brilliant author, but writes in an accessible way to say, here are answers that are great. Like, it's great for a Sunday morning sermon. It's better for you to go have a cup of coffee with somebody who has questions, who is a skeptic, who has challenges, and have a conversation around these questions. And in and, and our culture right now, one of the things that is going on is that a lot of people are looking at religion and saying, listen, religion has been the cause of a lot of things that are immoral. It hinders morality. And religion has been behind a lot of violence in the world. How do we interact with that? And, and what I want to do is immediately, I want to like put up my dukes and go, I want to fight over that. And I just, I want to start like I've started most of the sermons I've preached on this by saying to us that the healthiest thing we can do, like the Bible just keeps telling the church that one of our central core values is Repentance which means we're just honest about where we've been wrong and and we figure out ways to walk in a different way and we're not afraid of saying, hey, listen, Christians have messed this up sometimes. And, And so the truth of the matter is that in the name of religion, people flew planes into buildings in our country and have done all kinds of terrorism in the name of religion. In the name of belief in God, 
There have been all kinds of atrocities throughout history, and sadly, yes, those who claim the name of Jesus have been part of those, including things like the Crusades, although the, the, the story about the Crusades is a lot more complex than those in our culture who just want to say Christians were part of the Crusades. Yet, even though the story is more complex, there are places where people bearing a cross as their banner did atrocities in the name of Jesus. Or, or the Spanish Inquisition, imperialism, and the missionary effort that came with uh, enslaving people, our record on slavery. I mean, there's just a lot of places we can go. We couple that in our current moment with all kinds of fallen leaders, people who had massive churches, massive ministries, and, and, and you, you unravel, kind of peel back their lives, and you find out the very things they were standing on stage railing against they were deeply involved in. Not too long ago, a man who was one of the greatest apologists in the church passed away, and after his death, it became known that this guy was part of running a series of massage parlors, and he raped, molested, and abused women in the name of Jesus, and after he would have sex with them, literally told them that it was their Christian duty to keep this silent. And that ought to tick us off. That ain't it, but it happens. And so it's okay, but see, one of the things that happens is all of a sudden people say, violence, morality, violence, water. We're like, oh my gosh, I got no answer for that. What I wanna do is I wanna give us an answer in two directions. One is I'm gonna say Christianity is actually the only worldview that has a really good answer for why that happens. But second, I wanna say, but the truth of the matter is what's going on in our culture is that we are getting associated with a small minority where the vast majority of people are being transformed by the power of the gospel. And if we removed Christianity from our culture, what would happen would be devastating. There is amazing good, and I just want to give you some of that information as we look at some of the words of Jesus in this, okay? And so I want to show you how gospel-centered Christianity uh, actually does this for us. Um, but, but let's, first of all, let's, let's talk about how do we answer when people say, you know, Christians have behaved badly. And what we want to do is go, not really. But the truth of the matter is what we ought to say is, yeah, I know, it breaks my heart too. But believe it or not, the Bible helps us understand that. Let me, let's point you to scripture. And let me just kind of, two things real quick of how we just acknowledge it and, and walk, I think, in repentance by saying, yes, this has happened. Yes, we don't agree with it. Yet, from the front pages of the Bible, the first pages of the Bible, we see that there are places where God's people were involved in terrible things, and the Bible doesn't run away from that. And so, so first of all, Jesus himself was super clear. We're gonna be talking about the Sermon on the Mount uh, today, and very specifically the Beatitudes of this passage where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. But he ends the sermon by saying this, listen to this, that everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. From the lips of Jesus, we hear this very clearly. Not everyone who claims Jesus knows Jesus. We are being included with a lot of bad actors who claim the name of Jesus, who are, who, who are doing crazy things. Like, like even, Jesus even said, like, you're prophesying, casting out demons, and they're going to stand before Jesus, and Jesus is going to be like, hey, you don't know me, and I don't know you. And sometimes we need to be careful to look and to people who say, well, what about this? We need to look and go, 
that does not look like Jesus. I stand with you. This man that I'm talking about, we should be clear, I, I got rid of his books. I, <laughs> there's no way I'm recommending, like his books are brilliant and I'm out. And a pastor who does this, it, it's a shame when you see pastors who commit atrocities and somehow because they are super gifted, they are great preachers, they can draw a crowd, the next church will hire this knob. And we need to stand up and say, that's not Christianity. Not everyone who claims Jesus really knows Jesus, even if they're gifted. You can fake being filled with the Spirit when you have incredible gifts. But you cannot fake character, which is the true sign of the Spirit. But the second thing we find in the Bible that helps us is that humanity, we're jacked up. Now, let me say that again, and then all God's people said, we're jacked up. Amen. Okay, maybe you don't believe you are. You are a hot mess. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand why you really need a Savior. We are broken people. We are sinful people who've been rescued, if you're a follower of Jesus, by a great Savior. But that rescue does not remove how deeply fallen we are. And you start reading the Bible, the great heroes, like I've said this before at Genesis, and we'll say it again today, over and over again. If you're trying to find a hero in the Bible, you're going to have to look long and hard. We have made coloring sheets and veggie tales about these people. We're like, David killed Goliath. He was awful and redeemed. He committed all kinds of atrocity, had the biggest political scandal that would make anything that happened among any of our presidents look like chump change. And, and God judged him for it, but he was still part of God's family. Moses murdered a man. You're not going to find a story that the Bible doesn't bring in the, the warts and ugliness of the character because the Bible keep, keeps on saying, listen, there's one hero these people are broken, flawed people like you and I, and hopefully life change, we get better in the gospel. But the truth of the matter is that there, are, there is only one hero in the Bible. His name is Jesus, and he's all we got. I'm not ever going to stand up here and say, hey, what we need to do is we need to go live our lives and be like David. Which part? I'm, I'm not going to stand up here and say, you know, we should live our lives like Joseph. If you work hard, you could be more like Joseph because Joseph was a snob. It's just not going to happen. I am going to point you to Jesus and say, fix your eyes on him and let the gospel transform you. But even in the midst of that, the Bible and the church history is full of people who really knew Jesus and were really flawed and really broken and really couldn't get out of their way. And what that does, both in the Bible and scriptures, reminds us that the only remedy is Jesus. We need a Savior to rescue us. And therefore, what we need to be doing is pointing people to Jesus to say, I get that, but let me tell you about Jesus. Let me show you Christ. He's different. And where we see people not being transformed by this, that's a problem. And that, that is not what it looks like. And so when we approach this, you know, we, we just need to be careful not to run away from when, when our neighbors, our friends, people were talking, say, you know, Christianity has a bad record. We should say, I know. But, but so does everybody else. Like 50 years ago, the vision 
that shows up in Beatles music and, and everywhere else in culture is if the culture just became more secular, if we just ditched religion and ran to secularism, the world would be a better place. What that gave us is communist China, communist Russia, uh, North Korea. Like it, The atheistic, agnostic, secular worldview does not have a better record on human rights and a better record on these issues than people of religion. But the other thing we need to see is that the gospel actually does work and the people who come to us and and, and they want to look at Christianity and say, well, it's got this bad record, they're not seeing the whole story. And we can share the whole story with them. And and what I want to do for our time this morning is I want us to, to wrestle with this idea that Christianity, first of all, um, gives people, like people who truly trust and know Jesus. And hey, hear me, as I'm using Christianity now, I'm not talking about um, some religion that is entrenched in, in like an institutional thing. I'm talking about people who love and know Jesus. And as they love and know Jesus, they are transformed because they become part of a better kingdom. And that transformation does change their lives. And what is true now and true all throughout history is that the vast majority of people who have believed the gospel and who have loved Jesus deeply have moved towards the ethics and values and morals and attitudes of the kingdom and have become what he himself called them to be. They have become salt and light. And so our goal this morning is to say, okay, there's a different story, but are we as a people being what Jesus said? And to do that, I want want to read Jesus' own words. Grab a Bible. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, look in um, uh, at the end of rows here. There's some baskets that have Bibles in them. We would love love you to have one of those Bibles so you can read along with us uh, in Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be reading a section of Scripture that is the beginning of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the longest single sermon recorded in Scripture from the lips of Jesus. It's, it covers three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in our Bibles, and Jesus is now talking to his disciples. But in verse 1, it says that Jesus saw the crowds, he pulled his disciples to the mountain, and he taught them. So here's what's going on. You have to understand, this is so important to understanding this whole section of Scripture, is that Jesus sees the needs of a broken world. He sees the crowds. And he gathers his dudes, his people, his followers to him. He goes up on a mountain and he takes the official position of a a rabbi. In, In that culture, in our culture, the pastor stands, the people sit. In that culture, the rabbi sat and the people stood. Um, and maybe one of these Sundays we'll try. We'll, we'll, we'll flip flop that. All right. See, a lot of people are like, yeah, that's the Sunday I'm going to miss. I'm going to be out. I'll watch the live stream on that day. Right. Uh, but Jesus takes the official position of the rabbi. But the crowds are in view. He's saying, because of this, this is what I'm going to teach you. And what happens in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is he declares to them the ethics and the values of the kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus is the key, uh, one of the great overarching themes of the Bible. And simply put, the kingdom of Jesus is where Jesus, as the king, rules. He came to be our king. He is our king. And where he rules, his ethics and values will uh, rule and reign. But Jesus came with an upside down, backwards kingdom to the kingdoms of this world. One of the problems that I want you to see as we read the ethics of the kingdom here, the way the kingdom should shape us, is I want you to understand that often the reason Christians get, like they fail so miserably with violence 
and, and, and some of these things is that they are trying to do kingdom work without kingdom ideals. They're trying to, to spread ethics and morals and good things, but they're trying to do it using secular political power and might and the sword rather than being like there's king. And so we have to understand who, who it is who's talking this morning. Jesus is preaching. This Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem eventually. He's going to lay down his rights. He's going to give himself away. He's going to be uh, uh, confronted by both religious and secular power. So here's a religious power who does an atrocity and a secular power, Rome, coming together to pour out the worst possible example of human sinfulness as they end up with Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, on a cross. But Jesus sacrifices himself, gives himself away, humbly accepting this role for the redemption of you and me in the world. And this is the gospel. The gospel is that Christ's kingdom comes not through a man who grabs a horse and a sword, but who gives his life as a ransom for many. And he gives himself away. And what you have to understand is that if we are truly kingdom people, that's how the kingdom comes. It comes through a people who have seen the beauty of Jesus and no longer are fighting for power. I'm not saying, we'll come back to politics later in this. I'm saying we are no longer using that as the means of, of, of trying to gain things. But what we are doing is through the ethics of our, our Savior, we are letting the kingdom transform us. And Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are the values of what it looks like. I have literally heard people who claim the name of Jesus, who look at the, like people who, who call themselves Christians, who look at the ethics and values that Jesus pours out in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and the type of humble gentleness that it calls for. I've heard people who claim the name of Jesus flat out say Jesus was wrong here. You're not going to win arguments in our world if you act like this. That's the problem. But here, I mean, I just want you to see Jesus' words. He's preaching and teaching to his guys saying because of the, because of the crowds, this is the way the kingdom's going to change you and it's going to have, like, really two outcomes in the passage. So check it out. Verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you'll see multiple, eight different times Jesus is going to say, You are blessed when? Being blessed means that God is pouring his goodness and his grace and his mercy in, into our lives. These, this is kind of a, a stair-step ladder. Uh, of, of character traits that, that, that looks, it's kind of what spiritual growth should look like. But in the midst of this, what, what we're understanding is this is not the result of me trying to become this. This is the result of the kingdom pouring itself into me. The more I trust in Jesus, the more my life will look like this. And where my life doesn't look like these character traits, it's probably a sign that at some place I'm not trusting the gospel and I'm not really looking to Christ as my true king. So blessed are you when you were like this. Blessed are you when you were poor in spirit. For theirs in the kingdom of heaven. You hear that? Blessed are you not not when you are haughty and rich in spirit. Blessed are you when you were poor in spirit. Where you realize I have nothing to offer. 
That, that, that's how we come to Jesus to begin with. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, the first thing that has to happen in your life is you have to come to a point where you see your own sinfulness and need and, and the fact that you are in desperate need of a Savior and then run to Jesus who will fill you with his blessing. But if you're not poor in spirit, if you weren't poor in spirit when you came to Jesus, you probably didn't come to Jesus. <laughs> I am a filthy wretch who needs grace. Anytime I start thinking I'm more than that, I'm going to end up with a problem. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be satisfied, or they shall be comforted. Uh, and, and here, mourning can re- refer to those who mourn on the level of they've lost a loved one, they, they grieve over the nation, they grieve over the brokenness of the world, and that is a very real thing. But here, I very specifically think Jesus is speaking to blessed are those who mourn over their own sin. Their sin breaks their heart, and they, they are constantly walking in repentance and trust in Jesus because they see that... that I need grace. And, and so there is a, an attitude of mourning and sadness, but then there is a comforting that comes as we receive forgiveness. Blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness, gentleness, the idea that, that, that there's not pride, there's not haughtiness, there is not fight to, to overcome and, and culture batter. Like we are people who are humble and meek. Blessed are those who are who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those who have like a starvation, a parchedness as I get a drink. Like I, that was kind of funny to me. I didn't even realize I was doing that. But you know, I'm like, I'm thirsty. Blessed are those who like, like but, but Jesus is talking to people who knows what it's like to go a day without water and a couple days without food. Like it's not just, oh my gosh, fat guy, I'm hungry. It's people who, who like their hunger is, is, a desperate need, and he's saying, when, when you were like that for righteousness, for, for the gospel to so transform your character, the way you do your life is being transformed, and you hunger for the beauty of Christ in your life, so that your ethics, your values, your morals, your gossip, your sexual attitudes and morals, your, your family life are being transformed by Jesus, because you want him in your life more than anything. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Those who, rather than, like he will go on in this and say, well, you know, somebody strikes you on a cheek, turn the other cheek. We don't fight back. We don't, in the name of Jesus, we don't like confront and anger, but we are merciful as people who have received mercy. We are quick to forgive. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those whose hearts are, are just becoming more and more changed and pure and beautiful. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then blessed are the persecuted. I'll come to this in a minute, the, the next verse in a minute. But I want you to see this verse seven. And what, what happens is that if you go around the world and say, is this what you think of when you think of Christians? Most people will be like, No. In fact, recently, like our history is filled with a pretty positive view of Christianity. Recently, a study, uh, they asked uh, Americans, like a study of people, Barna did the study, George Barna did the study, and they asked Americans, do you believe that religion is overall a, a, a positive thing or a negative thing in our culture? Is it a good or an evil? And 51% of people said religion is an evil. It's a negative thing. That's a culture we live in right now, Okay. 
They look at this, and that's a really broad question. Of course they know Christians who don't live that way, but the really broad question is when people think of Christians in our culture, they are thinking of those who've been involved in sexual abuse scandal, who, who are power hungry, who are on the stage standing up and telling poor widows that they should give all their money to them so that God will bless them tenfold, and now they're, they're, they got private airplanes and giant yachts taking their money from poor people. Like That's what people think of. But what I want you to understand this morning is that the vast majority of people who follow Jesus are gradually becoming more and more like this. The the majority culture of the church, the world only sees the ugliness where we have failures and we have them. But most of you in this room, I've watched you grow in these sort of character traits. Have we arrived? No. Am I ever going to arrive? No. Who is the only one who really looks like this? All right, that should have been low-hanging fruit question, all right? Who's the only one who actually looks like this? Jesus is the only one. He's the only one who gets this 100%. He's the only sinless Savior we have. But the more we follow him, the more we're transforming. Our character, are there areas where all of us are like, I'm going, but I ain't there, and I really struggle with this? Are there people in here where mercy is more of a default, and others where mercy is something where you have to bite your tongue and hold your fist and go, I will forgive you? Yeah, sure. But it's happening. And, and, and what, what the church needs to do is, hey, we need to be clear. Hey, listen, I love you. What you're saying about Christianity is not completely true, but second, we need to be those people. Now, what happens then is there's two things that happen in the text because of this. The first one is that Jesus looks at him and says, the more you become like like this, guess what? You'll be persecuted for it. Look at it, verse, uh, verse, uh, 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 here we are, verse 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you... Uh, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets of old uh, who were before you. Hear what he's saying. He's saying, listen, the truth of the matter is the more that we authentically look like Jesus, the more persecution is going to come. In some places and spaces, the reason people are abandoning their faith and leaving Christianity is because they see the true claims of Christ in their life and they don't want it. And as the church has lived more like Jesus, it has both pulled and repelled people. And so sometimes we are persecuted because there are people out there who don't act like Jesus. But what Jesus says, the more that we do act like Jesus, the more that we do proclaim the gospel, the more that we do love him, the more it's going to make us look different to the world around us, and the more the world's going to either be, like they're going to love some of the things we do, but they're not going to like our message. And our lives will embody the message. And let me lovingly say, that's okay. We're in a culture where this, like even now, this is not a huge deal. It's just a little more of, you know, people like, on Twitter and in the media and, you know, we, we, we find people out there and stories of some Christian who got marginalized and, and, and pushed out of culture and, and mistreated and, and, you know, we, we get upset and, and it, it's okay for us to feel the weight of that. But the truth of the matter is that here it's not, nothing like Sudan. But Jesus said, listen, when you authentically live the life of Christ, 
Some are going to be drawn to you. Others are going to be furious at you because they will see that if your life, the way you live your life is right, the way I'm living mine is not. And I'm not going to accept that. Yet, he looks at him and says, when you were living this way, verse, look at verse 13 uh, through 16. You were the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall, it be salt, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He's saying, listen, when we live our lives, like this is the kingdom living, and then he's going to spend Three chapters explaining what that looks like. And you can read that on your own. But here's what he's saying. He's saying when these values, these attitudes, these ethics start pouring into your life, when you are transformed by Jesus and you look more and more like your king, you are drawn to him, you love him, you trust in him, you, you, you walk in repentance and you grow in him, the more your life is like that, we will then live in the culture. And then he says, okay, I'm, remember, he's speaking to his disciples and he says, because of the crowds, let me teach you. He's saying, when you are living this way, what's gonna happen is you're gonna go into the world and you're going to be salt and light. Great metaphors. Metaphors are picked up almost in every religion. But what he's saying is the, the gospel will go into the culture through your lives. You'll be a living example, a living picture of Christ. And as you go with Jesus in your life on your lips, it will become like salt. Salt adds flavor. Salt is a preservative. In the ancient world where there was no refrigeration, they would salt meats and it would preserve them. You'll become a preservative. It was also a healing agent. Anybody have, you know, you heard, you've heard the phrase, it's like salt in your wounds. Salt in your wounds isn't fun, but if, when it's the only thing that can keep the infection out, it's a good thing. What we have is a broken, hurting world, and the gospel is now pouring salt on the wounds. It will heal them, but man, it's going to tick them off, right? You are the light of the world. City set on the hill can't be hidden. Let your light shine before men so they will see your good works and glorify. Light is, again, it's a self preaching metaphor. But the light is Christ. It's not just some good value system. It, it's Jesus. Every religion and philosophy is looking for light. And Jesus stood up and said, I'm the light of the world. And we become reflections, glorious reflections of that light in the culture. But for people who are in a cave, when you walk out the first time and see light, it's blinding and you don't want to have anything to do with it. That's what's happening when we live our lives. But he's saying, listen, the more the kingdom is in us, the more the kingdom will go out, these ethics of mercifulness, peacefulness, of loving of neighbor and that sort of stuff, it will begin to both cure and give light, but you will find people who are repelled by it and will find it ugly. But the more we do that, the more we add tastiness, the more we add beauty to the culture. And that's the commission Jesus calls us to. Now what happens is we can look and say, not everybody in church history has been that. Agree. Not everybody in church history has, has succeeded in this. I, I know. But through church history and even today, the majority voice of Christianity is people whose lives and ethics have been transformed and who are doing amazing things in the world in the name of Jesus when others aren't. Remember the story of three little pigs? 
Yes, that, that's the right answer. We all know it. You know, the, you got the three pigs. The first one builds house out of stick or straw. The second one house out of sticks. The third one builds house out of bricks. And you know, the, the one in the house of straw. Here comes big bad wolf and huffing up, huffing out. If you remember the old the old cartoon version, how your house down. You remember that? You know, and, 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 and he blows and down comes, and the pig takes off running, and then goes to the second house where the, the, the pig made it of sticks and blows his house down. Third house, he's ready to blow, and, uh, but it's made of, of bricks and it won't fall. And, and, and so what happens here is you have this picture of three homes, three foundations, three ways to build a house. And, and you know, I, I guess the moral to tell is don't be a bad wolf who climbs down a chimney, you'll get boiled. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, you have this picture of this. I want you to think of that image for a few minutes, okay? I want you to think of this image of these houses and the foundation that is laid and the sort of material that is built on that foundation. And I want you to think about different worldviews in this way. And, and what I want to say to you, I want you to think about this morning, is that, that when we think about the different worldviews that go on, they're building with different types of materials on different foundations, and therefore they end up with vastly different things. And we're in a world that is crying out, sometimes at Christians, but is saying justice, liberty, Righteousness. I mean, we have a world that is crying out for these values and attitudes of, of, of things like social justice, of things like um, liberty for all and, and democracy and all those sorts of things. And, and the world is trying to become more secular. But here's what I want you to hear. And she mentioned this in, in the video. What's going on in our culture is that you have this house that is made of straw built on a foundation that has nothing to hold it up. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to steal bricks off the Christian building and put it on the house of straw and claim it as their own. That is what is happening in Western culture right now when they talk of things like human equality, of caring for the poor. And, and the truth of the matter is that, first of all, the house that is the Christian house are built on the ethics, these things, like, the, the building material of your life and our church and, and the kingdom are the things that Jesus just laid out here in Matthew 5. Here, here's what the building materials look like. The foundation is Christ. We know there is a God. We know there is a Savior. We know there is a Redeemer. We know there is a King. And, and what are the things that build up? And all of a sudden, brick after brick is, is peacemaking, merciful, kind, justice, love, love. Of, like, you get it, right? And And... All it takes is a quick study of history to see that things like the, the things that our culture is clamoring for have never arisen out of any culture except those that are building on that foundation with those stones. Everybody wants to point to like Hinduism now. Folks, Hinduism gave us the caste system. You go to India right now, who is it that loves the poor and is caring for the broken in cities like Calcutta? It is not Hindus who have this house that is built of straw or hay. It is Christians who have said, because of Jesus, I will go to this place that this worldview has created, and I will love people that I don't even know. I will give my life to go to the nation so I can care for people who their own culture has rejected. That is what Hinduism built. Secularism and, and atheism, it's the same thing. What's happening right now is, is in, I want you to learn to pay attention to this, they're using language that are bricks from Christianity to try to put in their house. But eventually, the truth of the matter is, the worldview can't support it. Those bricks are going to collapse in any other context. Meanwhile, as Christians, these are the things that our faith has been. Look, 
I just want to give you a few examples of what I'm saying. I hope you get the illustration. I want to give you a few examples of, of how this has happened. First of all, I just want to throw it out. Early Christian history. Why did Christianity spread so quickly? The answer is really because. It wasn't because of the great preaching of the church. It wasn't because guys like me got up and preached every Sunday morning. That happened. It was, it, historically, the preaching of God's word and the gospel was central to the worship of the church. But what happened is the gospel was proclaimed to change the lives of people. And so just some things that happened in, in, in the Roman world, the Roman, the secular Roman world, who had, you know, had all this pantheon of gods but worshipped their government and worshipped their... First of all, the Roman government was atrocious at human rights. Nothing like human rights arose out of the Roman Empire or the, or the Greek Empire. There were rights for wealthy men. But half, half the world was slaves. And one of the real problems in the Roman culture was the problem of infanticide. That literally a baby would be born, and often if it was just a girl, or if it had special needs, the husband who ruled the house would rip the baby out of mom's arms and just throw it outside to die. It was common practice. You know why infanticide ended? Because Christians kept adopting the babies. It, 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 this is factual. Christians in communities, like all of a sudden had these huge families that were made up of the children of everybody else in town and just discarding them. Why? Because they were building with bricks. The gospel was changing them to say, that baby is made in the image of God and that baby matters. We have things like, uh, uh, in the Roman Empire, we have uh, the, the, the poor were just everywhere. And, and it was really looked down on to care for the poor. But it was Christians who began to live out of their ethic to care, first of all, for their own poor, but also for the poor of other people. Plagues would hit. Massive issues where people were dying in cities. You know what everybody, when a plague hit a city, you know what everybody in the city, every Roman did in the city? They moved out. They got the heck out of there. But what happened is Christians started moving in because they took the healing ministry of Jesus very seriously. To their own peril, not knowing what was causing this, they moved in to care for the sick and the poor and the dying in these cities. There's a guy named Emperor Julian. Emperor Julian hated Christianity because he thought the ethics of Jesus was going to make the Roman Empire weak. Yet... He writes this letter to this, this uh, person in Galatia who is a leader of the Roman religion. And I want you to hear what he says about Christians in the first century. Why then do we think that this is sufficient and, not, and do not observe how the kindness of Christians to strangers, their care for the burial of the dead, in other words, they're moving towards people who are dying and dead and make sure they're treated with with humanity, and the sobriety of their lifestyle, in other words, their, their ethics and character, sobriety of life has done the most to advance their cause. Each of these things, I think, ought to be really to be practiced by us, for it is disgraceful when no Jew is a beggar and the impious Galileans support our poor in addition to their own. Everyone is able to see that our, our, our co-religionists are in want of aid from us. Now, I don't know if you interpreted that well, but let me explain what emperor, the emperor of the Roman Empire is looking at a religious leader going, 
I don't want you to believe in Jesus, but for the love of God, would you act more like the Christians? Would you get our drunk priests to start caring for somebody other than themselves? What's he doing? He's grabbing bricks and putting it on straw. Didn't work. Never happened. What did happen? Christianity became the accepted normal religion because so many people were running to change lives. This is what happened in the first three centuries of Christianity. It was the the lives of people who were being transformed by the gospel that became so compelling that people ran to Jesus. Now, we live in a world now that has been influenced by that Christianity for 2,000 years, and we're kind of becoming post-Christian. But don't think that if Christianity collapsed in our country, it would have... um, it would have uh, positive impact consequences. And I just, what I want to do is real quick, I want to share with you four basic real quick areas. This is not all of them. Four quick areas where Christians, the majority voice of Christians who are loving Jesus and living out the implications of the gospel, who are attending church like we are this week, who just love Jesus, they're trying to, to, to build their life on him, that they're putting these sort of things in their lives. I just want to show you some things that are true of the church in our culture. Four areas. The first one is generosity. I want to talk to you about the fact that generosity, that, 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 that Jesus compels us to say, you have been, like, you've been bought with a price. Christ loves you. He gave himself for you. One of the first things that ought to happen is that we no longer see our stuff as our own, our bank account as our own. We become super generous. We start giving away. So here's a question for you. For the cause of the poor around the world, What would be more devastating to the cause of the poor? The end of U.S. aid to the nations or the end of Christian giving? You all, we outgive our government by almost $2 billion a year to the poverty of the nations. Bill Gates' organization, who is a they're doing good work. The Gates Foundation, like a ton of his money. It's the most well-known philanthropy organization in the world. People who attend churches like ours outgive that organization to the cause almost five times every year. So much so that George Barna discovered that Christian philanthropy accounted for 70% of all American philanthropy in 2022 at $300 billion total. They outgave the U.S. government in addressing global poverty. If Christian, like people say, Christians, Christianity is a negative, and it is Christians who are giving the most and most generous, and most of this money is going to boots-on-the-ground organizations. So in other words, you end up with the government giving through other governments and you end all, all this waste. And what's happening is we're giving money, and that money ends up in the hands of local churches and local ministries who are in cities who are just caring for people in that city who are opening orphanages and, and, and taking in children and caring for the poor and giving food to the needy. Like, it, it's not only the most giving, it is by far the most effective way to give. And if Christians just dried up and said, we're out, we're, we're not, like if, if we disappeared here, 70% of philanthropy. Now, why is that true? Well, on one level, we've been building with the, the material that Jesus said we should. And all the rest of the world says we should be more generous. They should be. But at the end of the day, when you look at, you look at people and you go, you are just a, a cosmic accident. You have no worth. 
the, and, and I don't have any worth. My only purpose in life is to be happy and get all I can out of life. There's not a whole lot of motivation for generosity in that message. Generosity. Second, second thing I'll point out to you today is, is um, the, the idea of care for the poor and the sick. Now, this goes with generosity, but, but I, I would just challenge anybody who wants to look at Christianity and say, it's a negative in our culture just to drive around any city and look at the name of almost every hospital, just in our own city. What, what you find is almost every hospital in our city, with maybe the exception of one or two, was started by some group of people who were connected to the faith of Jesus Christ. So we end up with Saint so-and-so or so-and-so Baptist Medical Center or something. You, you get what I'm saying? And then you go in the inner city, you start looking at issues of homelessness, poverty, food, uh, caring for educational systems, loving people in neighborhoods, job training. You go into most cities like this, just look at the, the organizations that are boots on the ground, people who are giving generously and others who are giving up their life to the center of, the, of these urban core what, who's there doing this work? It's followers of Jesus who take the mission of Jesus seriously. I've, I've been to Haiti like 20 times. And Haiti's government is a hot mess. The, the nation is, is decimated in deep poverty. Who is it that's there who is making a difference? Local churches, believers in Jesus who go, people who generously give. Like, it, it, it's it's... Those who believe in Jesus. Now, are other people doing it? Sure. But it's nowhere near the rate that those who claim Christ are. It's just a reality. Uh, third area is human dignity, rights, and justice. And I don't have a ton of time to go into this. But, you know, our, our, our founding document, our, our Declaration of Independence tells us that, um, that we are um, endowed with, uh, that we are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Now, I'm not saying this morning that the United States was founded by all Christians, or am I trying to make the claim it's a Christian nation? What I am saying is they pulled bricks from the Christian worldview to build it. In other words, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, is something that flows out of a, a worldview that looks at every human being and says, you were created in the image of God and you have worth, value, and meaning. Okay? And so things like liberty, justice, um, things like human dignity, and this is a big one in our culture right now, where the secular worldview is fighting for dignity, justice, human rights, the rights of every person, all that sort of stuff, but they are trying to put bricks on a foundation that can't bear it because at the core of the worldview, and this is where, she, Rebecca McLaughlin referenced this, this is where if, if you actually are going to move towards a worldview that doesn't believe in a creator, you have to look at our humanity. There's no way around it. There's no such thing as justice. There's no such thing as rights. There's no such thing as human dignity and worth. We are cosmic accidents, nothing else. And any, any language that is being talked about in our secular culture about justice and rights and things like that is borrowed from us. The civil rights movement in the 1960s was led by Dr. King and other African-American pastors and primarily the African-American church in our country who loved the gospel and loved Jesus. 
And their language is all built, like for the call for justice, quoting the Old Testament prophets. It was a call for something that came from who Jesus was in their lives. But the more this conversation is shifting into a secular mode, there is not, like, there's no belief system that can uphold what they're calling our culture to. And we need to be reminded, yes, we believe in those things. We should be on the forefront of fighting for justice and liberty and uh, religious liberty and and freedoms. And we should believe that that democracy can be a really good thing because democracy recognizes both the beauty of all humanity and the fallenness of all humanity. And corporately, we can do more. Uh, but, But at the end of the day, these are ideas that flowed out of the Christian worldview into the Western world and and. You pull that out, and, and it's a house of cards. It, Big Bad Wolf's going to blow in 40 or 50 years. It's, it's going to come tumbling down. And here we are just loving Jesus. Last one I'll say just real quickly is forgiveness, the idea of forgiveness, being merciful. Here you have two stories in, in just the last few years of shooters walking into religious spaces. This story of the Amish in Pennsylvania, if you're not familiar with it, and, a few years ago, a man walked in, and, and uh, two, it was back in 2006. He, he, he took the life of uh, five little girls, shot 10, and then took his own life in an in a Amish schoolhouse, a little one-room schoolhouse. And the Amish community was devastated. But three days later, they held the funeral for the man who did it. And the whole community showed up at the funeral of the man who killed their kids. And the world looked and went, wait, what? What? This is nuts. And one of the moms said, there is a wife and two children who are grieving too. And Jesus would have it no other way. It is this house that builds that stuff. Why? Because Jesus hung on a cross and said, Father, forgive them. Don't run from the Christian worldview. Run to it. When, when, when we fail, acknowledge it. We, like, but as you have friends and family and people who are saying, I just can't believe in Christianity because it causes violence, hinders morality, agree. And then remind them, it's not the whole story. It's not the whole story. History is filled with the beauty of the fact that where Christianity has had influence, people's lives are authentically being changed, and when people's lives are authentically being changed, they will be salt and light. They will be salt and light. And so our call this morning, as our band comes, I have laid, a, I, I hope something that makes you think this morning, as our band comes and sings, we're going to come back to the beginning of the story. The man who taught his disciples was the living picture of this, and he gave his life for you and for me. He is our redeemer. He is our savior. If you were here this morning, you are a sinner in need of grace. You are a fallen, broken person who is in need of a beautiful gospel that says, no matter how far you've strayed, no matter how broken you are, Christ will save you. He will forgive you. He will adopt you into his family. He will free you. He will give you all the blessings and benefits of the kingdom of God. It will pour into your life if you will just believe. And if you were here today and you were a follower of Jesus, let's look at this and go, hey, listen, we need to individually and as the people of God, let the gospel so transform us so that we are poor in spirit, mourn, meek and humble.
loving our neighbors, caring for brokenness. Let our lives so be transformed by the gospel that we truly are salt and light to our city. Lord, we love you today. We praise you. I thank you for your word. Thank you for your own teaching to your disciples and your reminder that we are to be salt and light and transformed. Help us, Lord, to become more like you in all that we do and say. In your name I pray, amen.